Okay, are you ready? <clears throat> Let me get all my phlegms out. You yeah, we're <laughs> burp, fart, scratch. <laughs> we just would like to remind you that none of the things that we say should be taken as official recommendations. We try to know what we're talking about, but this podcast ultimately represents the opinions of a couple yahoos with master's degrees. It's <laughs> mainly for entertainment. Right. So if you feel that you need help with your own mental health, we encourage you, please talk to your very own doctor or your very own counselor. Get real help. And remember, this podcast is not safe for work, so listen with headphones. Welcome to Freudian Sips. A podcast about brains, beverages, and other BS. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Anna. And we're back. Hello. Hello, everyone. How's quarantine going? How's the pandemic? How you doing? <laughs> Can I tell you, Anna, I'm not doing too well. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your honesty, and I agree with it. I'm just saying, if I don't get my hair cut soon... <laughs> Mom's I'm losing her I'm going mind to about her hair. I'm going to start. She's currently wearing a bandana, and I don't think she's going to take it off. I'm not. Ever. I'm going to keep it on until June 1st when I can get my freaking hair cut. I'm, I'm thinking about crossing state lines. Because isn't some that how it will work? Black like if some, market haircut Yeah, if some, if some states loosen their whatever, <laughs> I'm going to like go and search in the dark of night for a bootleg haircut person. Before weed was legal, that's what we had to do, right? <laughs> that's right. And people found weed. <laughs> people still smoke <laughs> and people are going to get haircuts. It's just going to happen. People are going to find a way, government, to get our haircuts. This so is prohibition all over again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't think that's true. Okay. I think, well, you know, like, I think if I was in a profession where I, I was just staying at home, I wouldn't care so much about right. my hair. But I mean, we're seeing clients. So people are seeing this. <laughs> they come into my office it's, and go, oh my God. It's really not that bad, Mom. <laughs> That's because I have a bandana on it's, right now. <laughs> it's fair. It's fair you do. You do not want to see what's under this bandana. <laughs> she takes it off. Her hair is just like four feet long. Boing. How did your hair grow that fast? <laughs> okay, I'm all right. I'm all right. Are you? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not. No, I'm not. But sometimes it's okay to not be okay. That's what I've been telling everyone right now. That's kind of the message. Yes. So, so let's have some fun, everyone. Listen, <laughs> we've had some fun here, but let's have more fun. Laughter is the best medicine. That's or and I don't know that we'll actually laugh about this all the way. You know through. what's not the best medicine? Injecting disinfectant into yourself, like Trub says we should do. <laughs> hey everyone, don't he, freaking do that. Wait a minute, excuse me, I missed this news conference. Uh, Lysol had to put out a statement that was like, "Don't inject disinfectant into yourself." <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. Oh my god, I'm I'm not kidding. Okay. Uh. uh. I'm So let's not talk about politics or the pandemic. Let Ooh. me tell you. Okay, so last episode, I was having a mental breakdown <laughs> that we had already talked about the sensation-seeking thing. Oh, yes, yes. And our dear listener, Emily. Hi, Emily. Thank you. You're wonderful. Emily figured it out? Emily figured it out. She reminded us on Twitter that we talked about the sensation-seeking scale in the horror movie episode, episode 36. 
Oh, okay. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. Because that was one of the things listed on, like, the high sensation seeking is, like, watching horror movies and stuff like that. Oh, that makes sense. Emily's so smart. I know. Emily, you're wonderful. You're our hero. And we do not have any more uh, reviews to read. However, today I got a lovely message from a listener on Instagram. Can I read it to you? Please do. It says, hi, I just started listening to your podcast via Spotify. Thanks to a mention from one of the episodes from Popcorn Psychology. (gasps) Thanks, Popcorn Psychology. We love you. And first of all, even though I don't drink, I tremendously enjoy your conversation and the great humor that goes into it as well. I love that you ladies go back to basics with Freud and Young and diving into different topics as well. Listening to you makes my workday go fast. And I also get to learn more about the workings of the human nature. As of right now, I'm only on episode four about Young. I had a eureka moment when you started talking about the archetypes. I don't know if you've heard about the video game Persona 5, but the concept is so, so about the archetypes. Um, And she she goes on to explain about the game. But I can actually say that Nathan has been playing through Persona 5 and Gabe, my brother, your son, uh, you've met him. (laughs) Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, that he actually like introduced us to that game. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was cool to, and I already told her uh, that Nathan plays that. I told Nathan mm-hmm. that she mentioned it. It's cool. And if you if you do like archetypes, if you're listening to this, do check out that game. It's like a turn-based role-play game kind of thing where there's battles and stuff. But it has like a tarot card theme. It has an archetypes theme where like literally they like put on masks and become different personas. Oh, wow. It's really neat. That is so cool. yeah. So listen to our young episode, the episode four, and then go play Persona 5. And then do something with six, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of cool how the, it's it's kind of a small world feeling. Yeah. Like, oh, I play that. I do that. Yeah. I, yeah. I know that game. That's cool. Well, oh, it's exciting to have a new listener that comments yes. to us. That's Thank very you, nice. Thank you, Crafty Dreamer 620 Wow, that's a great name. Right? Okay. Okay. Do we get down to business? Let's do we get it. get down to business. What business do you want to do first, yours or mine? I think yours is more fun, so we should maybe save it. I don't okay, know. Okay, do it. I'll do it either way you want to do you, it. No, you go first. I'll do it first. So today we're going to talk about wacky experiments. <laughs> and we've kind of done this before because there are so many wacky experiments out there. Things throughout the history of psychology that were experiments that perhaps were not handled in the best ethical ways this is actually our volume three of unethical experiments we've Mm -hmm. done episode 15 and episode 35 we talked about some unethical questionable experiments Mm -hmm. in those as well so we're not going to let you down because we've got two more that are quite unethical quite unethical and how did we pick these how did we pick (laughs) we picked them we we picked (laughs) The two experiments with the worst names that we could find. That's true. That is very true. Okay. So I'll start. Yeah. What's your what's your experiment, Mom? Well, I will say this, that officially this study was done and officially it was never published in a peer review. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised. Because, <laughs> yeah, you're going to know why in just a little while. It was it was never spoken of again. Although obviously it was spoken of again. It <laughs> was here we are. We're speaking of and it. And we're speaking of it right now. It was originally called the Tudor study because Mary Tudor was the grad student, which I feel great empathy for her in this, <laughs> who actually did the study, although she did it because her professor told her that this would be a good idea and, and he oversaw it and it was basically his idea. Yeah. And she carried it out. Do you think that's because, I mean, spoiler alert, it is very unethical. Mm -hmm. Is that because he wanted to, like, 
hide belay responsibility i think that's very possible (laughs) um so so let me just let the cat out of the bag and say that we now call this the monster study (laughs) the monster monster study study. so they took cans of an energy drink and they (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah i wish it was that easy okay let me step back for a minute and talk about wendell johnson who was the person who actually came up with this idea he uh was born april 16th 1906 and he lived until 1965. Uh, he was an American psychologist. He was also an actor, by the way. I'm not sure what that means exactly or where he was acting. But... <laughs> Actors are weird. <laughs> and We're both he... actors, so we can say <laughs> we can throw stones because we are ourselves. <laughs> he was also an author of many, many books. And actually, even though this is, as you will find out, not a good thing <laughs> on his record, this monster <laughs> study, because of the way it was handled, he still is well thought of. In some section, Hannah looked at me with horror. Just said, <laughs> "I don't think of him well." <laughs> he was <laughs> he's um, he's thought of well, but not on Freudian Sims <laughs> because um, they actually named the big hearing center. Uh, it's called the Wendell Johnson Speech and Hearing Center. It houses the University of Iowa Speech Pathology and, and Audiology program. Still to this day, it's named after him, and. From what I was reading, Anna is, is looking at me with monster horror in her eyes. I don't know everything about this study, but I kind of know. And the I want you to keep that little tidbit in your brains, folks. I want you to keep what he has named after him in your brains. Right. Just keep and, it there. And I think that's why I wanted to start with that, because he is, and, and I know I said that and, and Anna glared, but... <laughs> It's one of those things, and we've talked about this before, with experiments that were unethical. Remember, or I haven't maybe said this yet, this study was done in 1939. Okay. And so at that time, they didn't have the same ethical code that we have now. Now, granted, shouldn't people have just known? (laughs) I mean, consciences weren't invented until 1960 or whatever, I guess. (laughs) Around the 60s, and with the 70s and the free love, came a few ethics. People were like... Hey, maybe we shouldn't, like, torture people. (laughs) Maybe we shouldn't experiment on children. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those kind of things. But one of the things that I read was that the experiment was not only hidden, you know, later when they were like, oh, crap, what do we do? But even in the beginning, it was kind of hidden because they were concerned that Johnson's reputation would be damaged um, because it was so close to the whole idea that the Nazis had done all this bad stuff during World War II. And they do, it was like, oh, you know, this is kind of like that bad stuff. Here's a pro tip, folks. <laughs> if you think you're doing something that Nazis did, don't do it. <laughs> rethink your decisions. <laughs> okay. So let me say one more thing about Wendell. When Wendell was little, he stuttered. Oh. He had a serious stutter. And so we've talked about before that when you when you talk about someone's history, a lot of times you kind of see a foreshadowing maybe of what they're going to be interested in in their studies later. And indeed, that's kind of what seemed to spark him. However, okay, see, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of leading up to what actually happened. I'm trying, I know. To, I'm trying to wet your whistle because <laughs> I want you to see that Wendell himself was a person who stuttered. Sure. And in one of his books, he said, the stutterer if I may speak for him as a type, does not want pity any more than he wants contempt, but he does want the understanding which the normal respect of one human being for another human being makes possible. He is a human being trying to make a stutter's adaptation to a world of glib speakers. Okay. And so, 
you know, respect I a person f- who might have a stutter. Well, and that extends to all disability. I mean, right. we, we have this tendency to, I mean, it's kind of ableism in our society where like if someone has a disability of some sort they are seen as lesser or if they or or they're not even maybe lesser just different right but they're just people they're just going through something that's different than us so so there's this kind of ascribing personality traits based on the things you're going through and that can be hard that's exactly right so again keep in mind that lovely little quote that basically said that he feels that everybody should respect Everybody else. R E S P U C T, please don't experiment on me. <laughs> oh my God. That was so good, Anna. That was so good. I can't even talk now. I just. <laughs> Top of my head, baby. <laughs> oh. So here we go. In 1939, uh, Wendell charged. Mary Tudor with doing this experiment, which she, I, I just, I don't even want to start it. I really don't. <laughs> Neither did Mary. It was, it, was, <laughs> it was officially conducted by Wendell Johnson at the University of Iowa. Oh. And. Uh, Wait, so what was Mary's role in it? Well, like he got credit for, for it, but she did it. He didn't do any of it. He just kind of told her what to do. Oh. So he was officially like the. Supervisor, would that I be the guess. word? Yeah. So I'm thinking, Anna, like if one of our graduate professors would have said, Anna, I would like you to do a study for me. At, okay, yes. At um, the orphanage um, down the street. Uh, yeah. How about you explain what the study is and then we'll go into whether <laughs> okay. or not we would do the study. <laughs> okay. So the children were 22 orphan children in a veterans orphanage, which kind of makes it even sadder there's to me. just layers I mean, there's, there's just, just like an so onion. many sadness yes um 22 children 10 of the children had already been identified by teachers uh, within the orphanage that they did have a stutter problem 10 of them okay the other 12 were in quotation marks normal speech children so they they had not been identified with any speech problems at all so basically speaking oh i'm gonna have to read it because otherwise i'll be like <laughs> <laughs> okay Tudor was trying to induce stuttering in healthy children and to see whether telling the stutterers that their speech was okay would make a change. So again, there were many layers because they were trying to find out if stuttering... Wendell was very into the idea that stuttering was not just... I'm I'm trying to think how to put this into words. He believed that a big part of the reason children stutter is because the adults in their life make too big of a deal of it basically it's like a nurture versus nature right right and it's and it was not because at the time there was an overall thought that stuttering had to do with an imbalance in the brain and and specifically and i think this was interesting specifically like if a child was uh left-handed but was meant to write with their right hand or do things with the right hand which i remember my grandma telling me that when she was in school because she was a a left-handed person and she had to write with the right hand or the nuns would hit her so there was a belief at that time a theory at that time that that was one of the reasons that children stuttered was that they were trying to use the wrong side of their body basically (laughs) okay um and so they were throwing their brain out of balance cerebral imbalance 
And his belief was that that was not true, that it was a nurture thing that had to do with the way people reinforced positive or negatively a person's speech. I mean, uh, we know now that there is a lot that kids take from how the adults in their life react. Like, this is the thing, like, where when a toddler is running around and they fall and just biff it mm-hmm. and the parents if they're like oh gosh are you okay oh no oh, no mm-hmm. you're so oh. are you're so hurt yeah. then the the child's gonna cry but if the parent's like Haha, oh you're fine mm-hmm. then the child will just kind of get up and shake it off mm-hmm. so uh, there is a lot that we do take from how people react around us i believe i believe that's true as well So, Tudor and five other graduate students who had agreed to help served as judges and they listened to the children speak and then they graded the children on a scale of from one poor, being able to enunciate poorly, to five, being fluent. And they agreed with what the school's teachers had already said about those 10 students being significant. Okay. So, five... Uh, and for lack of a better term, I'm going to call them stutterers, although that seems politically incorrect. But that's what, everywhere I looked, that's what they yeah. referred to them as. So five of the children who had a stutter were put in group 1A. The speakeasies. <laughs> and the non-speakeasies. <laughs> and that was called the experimental set. And they would be told that their speech was fine. So the the kids in 1A were told, you don't have a stutter. You're fine. You're going to outgrow it. It's no big deal. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Did Wendell outgrow his or did he go through some kind of speech therapy? It didn't say in the article. But, but he struggled with, even as an adult. Okay. He struggled with stammering was the way it was worded. So... Because it said he had a stutter as a child. I don't mm-hmm. know if he outgrew it. He still s- struggled with speaking publicly. Okay, okay. Okay. And so then the other five children who had a stutter were put in group 1B. And that was the control group. And they w- were going to be told that they did have a bad stutter. And like, yeah, you got a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. The remaining 12 children were chosen at random from the population from the orphanage, which... There's just so much to say about that. That they <laughs> took such advantage of these little children that basically there was nobody to fight to advocate for, them. for them. Yeah, exactly. It's That's like, the oh, these for. kids already lost their parents. It's not like yeah. anything worse can happen to them. Let's just take them and experiment on them. Oh, my gosh. So of these 12 children, six of them were, were assigned to what they called Group 2A. And these children, they actually ranged from age 5 to 15. They were told that their speech was not normal, even though they were. So they were told, like, and they were even, like, they, they said things like, well, you know how Susie stutters. You've heard how terrible that sounds. Well, you're going to be like that, too, because you're, you have the beginning of this. Oh. So it's, it's horrible when you read about oh, <laughs> putting my hand in front of my mouth because it's so horrible. <laughs> <laughs> So the final six children were put in group 2B, which was similar in age to the other group. Um, And these were normal speakers also, but they were complimented and told, you know, you are very good at enunciating. You have very nice speech. You are so good at talking. Right. Talking is good. Talking Talking is good. So good. So Tudor would visit and, and spend time with the students every, like once a week or every couple of weeks, I think. On her very first visit, though, it's it's interesting to note that she tested their IQs and she identified whether or not they were left-handed or right-handed because they were kind of trying to rule out that. Yeah, yeah. By the way, they found no correlation between handedness and speech. There was no correlation in this in this particular experiment. <laughs> Wendell was like, <laughs> they discounted my <laughs> hypothesis. I will torture them now. No, he didn't believe in that. He didn't believe in the handedness. Oh, thing. he didn't. I no. thought that. I thought that. 
no, cerebral he imbalance was part of his thing. No, the cerebral imbalance was what was thought in general oh, at the time. He it. didn't agree with that. So actually, that was good. He was oh. happy. So he so could have gotten worse. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine God what would have happened. <laughs> okay, so the experimental period lasted from January until late May 1939. And Tudor would go, oh, I'm sorry, it was only every every couple to three weeks. And they would t- she would talk to each child for 45 minutes. That would be a long day, wouldn't it? Yeah. How many? 20? 22? 22 kids. 22 kids. That's a lot. That's like 20... 20- she must have stayed for a couple of days. I'm trying to do the <laughs> All math. All day. Like, Holy crap. <laughs> 2 a.m. It's time for Susie's <laughs> session. So she followed an agreed upon script that she, you know, had in her dissertation. Oh, this is horrible. I just, I just. <laughs> it keeps getting worse. <laughs> I know. I, I have to actually read. She not only had a script for the kids that she would read to the students, but she had a script for the staff, too, because they were including the staff, like when she wasn't there, the staff were reinforcing what she was doing. Holy crap, right? So this is part one of the scripts that she read to the children. The staff has come to the conclusion that you have a great deal of trouble with your speech. The types of problems you're having we call stuttering. You have many of the symptoms of a child who's just beginning. So these are the ones who didn't have a stutter. You must try to stop yourself immediately. You must use your willpower. Make up your mind that you are going to speak without a single interruption. It's absolutely necessary that you do this. Do anything to keep from stuttering. Try harder to speak fluently and evenly. And if you have interruptions, just stop and try to begin again. Take a deep breath whenever you feel like you're going to stutter. Whenever you feel like you're going to stutter, just stop and start over. Hey, that's Uh a stutter. Don't even speak unless you can do it right. This is straight up emotional abuse. It is. Whatever you do, speak fluently and avoid any interruptions. That's what she said to the children. Those are the kind of things she said to the children. This is what she said. Tear my face off. I know. (laughs) So this is the kind of thing that she said to the staff. Our group has come to the conclusion that these children show definite symptoms of stuttering. You should impress upon them the value of good speech and that in order to have good speech, one has to speak fluently. Watch their speech all the time very carefully and stop them if they have any interruptions. Now think about how little kids talk. Yeah, well, think about (sighs) how grown-ups talk. Adults talk. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I mean, I've read a lot about like movies and TV shows that that's one of the things that dialogue does where it seems movie-like because it doesn't have those things that we all do when we talk where we um and, oh, and yeah, um and yeah. like and because it's so rehearsed yeah it's, it's not real yeah. if you've ever watched rick and morty that cartoon oh yeah they they have very natural speech patterns they like like they kind of they kind of stutter so everyone does that it's a normal thing yeah exactly so okay what was the hypo- the hypothesis was the nature versus nurture thing? The hypothesis is not we can give children complexes if we try. If we really put our minds to it, we can give them. It was, yeah, it was they specifically were trying to get the kids to stutter who didn't stutter. That was a specific goal. I can't wrap my mind around someone who had a stutter and to give that gave that oh so poignant speech about can't we all just be That's my whole point. Isn't that bizarre? It's like he was angry about the way the world And he was, was taking it out on orphans. So it- <laughs> He's a super villain. <laughs> That's a super villain origin story. Oh jeez. I got bullied because I had a stutter 
And so then I I tortured orphans. <laughs> Batman would kick this guy's ass. I know, I know. He should. <laughs> he should. <laughs> so the children that were fluent and were being treated negatively, obviously, were the ones who showed the greatest response, duh. Sure. Right? After just her second session with five-year-old, with a little girl named Norma Jean. Aw. Five years old. Tudor wrote this. It was very difficult to get her to speak, although she spoke very freely the month before. Uh, yeah, idiot, because you told her not to talk as she thinks she might possibly stutter. Exactly. Another in the group, a nine-year-old named Betty, practically refuses to talk at all, a researcher wrote in her final evaluation. You're not causing a stutter, you're causing selective mutism, you monsters. She oh, held, that's she why held- it's called that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I get it, I get it. <laughs> so the oldest one, Hazel, Hazel Potter was 15 years old. I love those books. She, I do. <laughs> she was the oldest one in the group. She became, quote, much more conscious of herself and she talked much less, Tudor noted. But Potter also began to interject and to snap her fingers in frustration. Oh. She was asked why she would say, ah, so much. Oh. And she responded, quote, because I'm afraid I can't say the next word right. And then the person said, why do you snap your fingers? And she said, because I was afraid I was going to say, uh, again. Oh. So she's getting like these nervous... Nervous ticks. Yeah, yeah. All of the children, all 22, their schoolwork suffered. Yeah. All 22. Even the ones that were being reinforced. Isn't that weird? Uh, yeah, that is weird. I think they just knew they were involved in something shifty. Uh-huh. Well, I can't... Im- so were they all in school together? Probably. W- even, within the orphanage. They were schooled in the orphanage. even if were being complimented... If, if you literally someone... half of my class, like, was suffering and being emotionally tortured and, like, de- devolving into stuttering and selective mutism, I think I would be a little freaked out, Isn't too. crazy? So there are so many things about this that I will I will sum it up by saying, in several places where I read, they, they said it very specifically. None of the kids who didn't stutter in the beginning developed a stutter, per se, but they all were negatively affected psychologically, all of them. Yeah. To the point of, and this is really interesting, even though the study was kind of hidden and not really talked about for very long. No idea why. It seems two- like on right. the up and up. In 2001, there, uh, there was a news article that came out about it. Someone found this information and, and started looking into it. And because of that article and, and all of the resurfacing of this information, and that's when they named it the Monster Study, Mary Tudor was the only person who testified during that time. I think that's really interesting because there were no other real eyewitnesses except the kids themselves. And many of them, by the time this came about, many of them had already died, which is kind of creepy because Mary was older. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I know. When was this? When did this? 2001. 2001, 2002. So 60. Well, she must have been old. Tudor. She was old when she died. But she. one of the things that she said when she testified was that she knew as it went along that it was not good and she felt that Wendell should have done more 
to follow up. And she herself, after the experiment was over, she went back to the orphanage three different times to try to process with the kids what had happened. Because when they started, they didn't they didn't tell the kids like this is an experiment. They just said we're going to work with you on your speech. And so there's that's one of those ethical things that you're supposed to tell people what this that this is an experiment sure. or whatever. There were just so many reasons this is wrong yeah. ethically. Yeah. But kind of a, a strange footnote to it is in August of 2007, seven of the orphan children were awarded a total of $1.2 million by the state of Iowa for lifelong psychological and emotional scars. Holy cow. Um, seven of them? Seven of them. So I'm not sure how, I mean, I'm. they probably were the ones who got in on it, you know, the yeah, people who, the ones who, who responded to in. it. Yeah. But of that, I think there was only one, maybe one or two that were actually alive. Wow. It, the rest of it was for the estate of those people but it said in more than one place that i saw that tutor expressed several times in her lifetime that she regretted being involved in that yeah that's a not a great mark on your character sheet there to be involved in the monster study it makes me just so sad for those little kids i uh, oh gosh i know i'm just picturing like dirty like oliver twist style orphans Mm. being just emotionally tortured Mm -hmm. exactly okay so that breaks pretty much every ethical rule in the book. Yeah, these are these are ones I thought of this when I was researching mine too. These are ones where I think in our other episodes we've done more breakdown on like why it was unethical because mm-hmm. maybe people outside of the psychology community wouldn't be super up on like how you're supposed to do informed consent right. and how you're supposed to handle like the debriefing afterwards. We've kind of talked about that in our mm-hmm. other episodes. But this one's pretty plain. This one's pretty pretty upfront, <laughs> huh? Yeah, you just shouldn't do that to orphans. Maybe just don't torture orphans. <laughs> Maybe um, just don't ruin that's orphans. That's probably self-esteem. somewhere in the handbook, don't torture orphans. <laughs> oh gosh, it's so sad. <laughs> just the thought of taking a child, any child, and saying, you got something really wrong with you. And I mean, I didn't even go into, you know, that part of what they were studying was like real negative like they were using real negative, you cannot talk that way. Yeah. People will not respect you. You you sound dumb when you talk that oh way. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, and like this is, I, I want to say in our Milgram episode where we talked about that, where again, it's like if you just take it at face value, I kind of get it. Mm-hmm. I kind of get what they were going for. Mm-hmm. But especially like the things that they say to these kids and to the participants, like the Milgram did it too, where it's like, you cannot leave. You must continue. That's what they were right, saying in the Milgram right. thing. And in this one, it's like, don't even think about talking if you might stutter at all. It's like, okay, listen, even if somewhere there was a good intention, you didn't do a good job. Exactly. You did a bad job. Yikes. Yeah. So I'll just add, my la- my closing thought would be like, there's always somebody who's <laughs> who's there to kind of be like, well, but it wasn't really that bad. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, here's Patricia Zabrowski, who is uh, from the University of Iowa. She's assistant professor of speech pathology. And she says, yeah, it was bad. But... The data resulting from the experiment is, quote, the largest collection of scientific information on the phenomenon of stuttering. And Johnson's work uh, was the first to discuss the importance of stutters, thoughts, attitudes, beliefs, feelings, and it continues to influence views on stuttering even in today's studies. You know what would have also accomplished that? (laughs) Just like talking to a stutterer. Any stutterer who wasn't also a Batman supervillain. 
Maybe just try to find a stutterer who isn't going to go full Hitler on orphans. Okay. I don't like Wendell Johnson. I can can hear that you do not care for Wendell. You don't care for him. And I think it's the cruelest kind of irony that he has a speech therapy center named after him. That is horrible. If I saw that in a comic, I would be like, that's too far-fetched. That's super villain. <laughs> my my suspension of disbelief is broken. <laughs> okay. Whew. All right. That's the monster study. That's what you got, baby. Dude, I've got a doozy. But first, <laughs> we're going to take a break because okay. I need to go to the bathroom. So <laughs> we'll be right back. Hello, I'm Anthony. And I'm Dr. Issues. And we're hosts of Capes on the Couch, the podcast where comics get counseling. Superheroes don't always get to go home happy. That's where we come in. We offer psychiatric and mental health analysis of comic book characters. So check us out at capesonthecouch.live and across all social media platforms at Capes on the Couch. Welcome back to the... (laughs) You feel much better now? I do. Welcome back to the Wacky Experiments Hour. I'm going to tell you about, it's, um, this one's hard. It's not, (laughs) it's not an experiment per se. (laughs) I wouldn't call it that. It's an experience. (laughs) It's very much like. This is why I wanted you to do this one because I knew you would just play it. You would just really play it. So when I talked about the Stanford Prison Experiment, I said kind of the same thing. We're like, experiments even in the name of that. And it's it's not. It's not in any way, shape, or form an experiment. It's a, it's a thing that happened. So this one's similar. I'm going to tell you about Operation Midnight Climax. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not just supposed to be misleading. No. That's actually what it is. <laughs> so... Uh, so this operation is in the MK Ultra family, where if you are unaware of Project MK Ultra, it was basically a CIA mind control program, and it's just rife with conspiracy and secrecy. Like, it, this was all going on in, like, the 50s and 60s, but even now there's, like, conspiracy theories about MK Ultra. Mm-hmm. A very notorious kind of period in the government consciousness. MK Ultra sounds like a brand of cigarettes. Or beer. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but One it's... One of each. <laughs> it's, and then you're mind controlled. That's how it works. But yeah, MKUltra is the code name that was given to the a lot of experiments that fall under that umbrella. A lot of illegal stuff, a lot of stuff we still don't know fully about because they tried to not maintain records. They tried to destroy records. They haven't declassified all the records. So there's a lot that we still don't know. And like I said, that's why a lot of people latch onto it for like conspiracy theories and stuff. And it's not even too much tinfoil hattery to say like, really crazy shit happened. Yes, exactly. I mean, like, it's not, it's not like people are saying, you know, oh my God, the CIA mind-controlled people and they're crazy for saying that. That actually happened. (laughs) That actually happened. Yeah, we did that. Oh yeah, that's Uh, true. We didn't do it. They did it. (laughs) They did it. (laughs) Us versus them all up in here, baby. (laughs) So before I tell you about Operation Midnight Climax, it is important that I tell you a little bit about a man named George H. White. George H. White was born in 1906, and he started as a journalist, uh, kind of an itinerant journalist. He he traveled around. 
when he was an adult, not in 1906 when he was a baby. That's important. <laughs> he was a very intelligent baby. <laughs> Just a little toddler with a little press hat on. But then eventually he became a narcotics agent in the early 1930s. So during World War II, he was part of the Office of Strategic Services, a precursor to the CIA, uh, after which he went back to narcotics. In the early 1950s, he became an investigator for a committee on organized crime. And these experiences are important to note because they would make him a shoe-in for his later involvement with this operation in question. One important source we have for George's life is a bunch of diaries and papers that he actually kept uh, about his own life. They were donated uh, by his widow after his death. A lot of the information in these papers has to do with his time in the CIA. Mm -hmm. But he also recorded things like Eisenhower and Nixon winning the presidential election. And he recorded that the Dodgers won the pennant in 55 uh, he even wrote an entry about his pet bird dying in 1952. Aww. It said, poor little bastard just couldn't make it. <laughs> Tried hard. I don't know if I'll ever get another bird or pet. It's tough on everyone when they die. So, He yeah. was like a person. He Sounds like a, a warm-hearted fella, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's read on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah, read yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1952, a diary entry of his talks about him becoming involved in this project. It said, Gottlieb proposes I be CIA consultant, and I agree. Uh, he was talking about Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, who was head of the chemical division of the technical services division and the man who ran MKUltra. He was like the overseer of the whole MKUltra uh, project, the whole umbrella. Okay. Um, but it took another year after this 1952 diary entry for George H. White to actually get uh, approval and clearance to be on this project. So we know that in 1953, corroborated by George's diary entries, that he rented a house at 81 Bedford Street in New York City's Greenwich Village under the name of Morgan Hall. Uh, he would use this same name later, several years later, to set up the Telegraph Hill apartment at 225 Chestnut Street in San Francisco, California. Mm. Uh, a friend of White named Leo Jones owned a company that installed bugging equipment in the apartment. Uh, he put in microphones that look like wall outlets linked to a listening post in the adjacent apartment. We know that the place was fitted with a one-way mirror. Uh, oh, creepy, creepy. Oh, yeah. Oh, I just can only oh, imagine man, it's what's getting, It's going to get so... Yeah, this yeah. is just a downhill slide and we're <laughs> both on it. In a later interview, Jones said that he had been contacted by White, but that the project was from the CIA and the Bureau of Narcotics, that it was a, a collaboration with them, okay. and that the apartment was modeled after 1955 Playboy magazine. Uh, row, row. True to form, this included White keeping a picture of chilled martinis in the apartment. Good. And also, photos of manacled women being tortured and whipped. Not good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that, You're welcome. Um, <laughs> Martini's good. Martini's good. Manical restrained women. women. No. <laughs> restrained women. No. Uh, after further research, by the way, it turns out the martinis were for George. It's not like he was keeping them as refreshment for people he would lure into the apartment. He also, he was the one in the listening post in the adjacent apartment. So he would sit on a portable toilet and drink a chilled martini while he watched the goings-on. Uh, George was maybe a little bit of a messed up dude. I am, um, I don't We have will words. crack into this <laughs> even more. Let's uh, not unpack that, shall we? So Let's not. <laughs> Jones had also heard about the project employing prostitutes. 
Okay. Uh, on several occasions, in fact, Morgan Hall, George, met with a CIA psychologist named John Gittinger, who would interview the prostitutes about their drug and sex habits. So the question is, what did these prostitutes do for Operation Midnight Climax? I wonder what, right? <laughs> Sorry. I wonder Every what. Every time you say it, I just have to laugh a little. Uh, Operation uh, Dusty <laughs> Sex Time. <laughs> Operation Nighttime Fun Times. <laughs> Yes. So the prostitute's job was to lure unsuspecting men to these quote-unquote safe houses that had been created. Ironic name, (laughs) based on what went on there. And while the men were there, they were dosed unwillingly and unknowingly with LSD and a range of other substances. But the agents seemed to like LSD the most. It was like their drug of choice to dose these people. I, I, can we get, can I, <laughs> you want to unpack this a little? Can I just pump, pump the brakes? Sure. Pump, pump, pump. Not pump the only them. thing getting pumped here. <laughs> oh my God. Have we, have you, did I miss what was the point of this? Or are we getting to that? Like, what is, what was their, um, what was their goal? Do we know what their goal was? I think that's a matter of subjectivity. Okay. Ostensibly, the goal was to, see what LSD could do. It was a relatively new substance at the time. Okay. Uh, so it was ostensibly to see if the CIA could use it. Because keep in mind, this was under the MK Ultra umbrella, which was mind control. Oh, okay. So they wanted to... Oh, they were seeing okay. if they could use it in the field. And what is the sex... Ha- I, I'm so confused. We're going to get there, bud. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I do want to clarify about the prostitutes that they probably were not exactly willing participants Mm. as we've established george white did not much care about a participant's willingness Mm -hmm. Uh, one account said that after his advances were denied by a local club singer named ruth kelly he drugged her with lsd Mm. yeah just before she went up to perform on stage he said it was to see what happened uh but ruth made it through her set set act Mm -hmm. performance set set and escaped to a hospital before white could intercept her yikes Uh, One source I saw said that as payment for their services, the sex workers would receive small amounts of cash as well as a guarantee from White that he'd intercede when the women inevitably had run-ins with law enforcement in the future. Yeah. So kind of some bribing blackmail stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. A little of both. And speaking of blackmail, that is also one of the reasons that prostitutes were used. Using prostitutes was a way to lure men in who would be too embarrassed to talk about these experiences. Oh, to do that, they okay. would have to admit that they were seeing a prostitute. Right. And also, there was a fair bit of sexual blackmail going on based on the activities, because this was all being recorded. I mean, it was being recorded through the one-way mirrors, being recorded through the microphones. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there was there was a lot of that. One psychiatrist who examined the CIA documents that still exist, of which there are not many, mm-hmm. um, found a memo indicating that the CIA was testing the performance of the prostitutes under conditions that mimicked a field operation to see whether they could become female spies or agents. God. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, let's get back to the job. Yeah, this makes the monster study <laughs> This is also tame. a monster. The, the monster study <laughs> not, name was already taken, this, I this guess. This is monster on steroids. Or LSD. Study. Yes, LSD. Exactly. <laughs> and that's okay. where I'm, I mean, I did struggle as I was researching this. Like, 
this has nothing to do with psychology. Mm-hmm. Why are we talking about it on our psychology <laughs> podcast? But I think there's things we can extrapolate oh, yeah. about well, psychology yeah. here. So we'll, well, yeah. we'll, we'll unpack there. that a bit. So these guys who would be lured in would get to the safe houses and get dosed. Like I said, they would be observed by the CIA agents through the one-way mirror and the recording devices. And like I said, basically, Sidney Gottlieb, the overall director, and and George White, and the agents wanted to use LSD in clandestine operations and needed to test to see what it could do, Um, I guess. Like, what it could actually, how much it could control people, if it could make them talk, if it could subdue them, what it was actually going to do in a field operation. Okay. And also Operation Midnight Climax was terrible, but it wasn't even the worst one. In another experiment with consenting test subjects, they managed to cross the ethics line even more by giving them LSD for 77 consecutive days. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they like, holy shit. They seem to reserve the like extra horrible stuff for consenting participants. Well, I guess the people consented. Yeah. I, I guess another part of this was that they wanted to refine surveillance methods Mm. Uh, and they also wanted to see how sex could get people to talk. They wanted to see how they could use that in field operations as well. Hmm. So that what they were trying to do was set up a field operation, I guess, in a controlled environment. Mm. But that's not what a field... I mean, that's not... <laughs> that's not what that means, CIA. I, don't, I can't believe I have to explain this to you, they CIA. Were, <laughs> they were just learning, Anna. They it were learning. It was just a government brothel and a veritable unethical experiment that factory. Sounds like it. Yeah. Later, post-retirement, White wrote a letter to a friend in which he talked about a rather obscure department of the government that would like to remain obscure. Uh, He talked about this department uh, saying it was then interested in obtaining some factual information and data on the use and effect of various hallucinogens, including marijuana tetrahydrocannabinol and then brand new LSD. Tests were made under both clinical and non-clinical conditions on both witting and unwitting subjects. So basically, yeah. Yeah. He was, that's that's where I said earlier, like, this isn't tinfoil hattery. This is, several people have corroborated uh, that this on, was going on. this is on. what happened, yeah. yeah. Actually, both White and Gottlieb took LSD. So that's fun. Huh. <laughs> A family friend said Sidney Gottlieb took LSD hundreds of times and was fascinated by it. That kind of reminds me of Freud and his cocaine. I guess. Maybe. That's apparently where he came up with all these experiment ideas. He's just on LSDs like, <laughs> I think everyone should try this. <laughs> Our pal George wrote in a letter, the letter that I actually just mentioned, So far as I was concerned, clear thinking was non-existent while under the influence of any of these drugs. I did feel at times that I was having a mind-expanding experience, but this vanished like a dream immediately after the session. Uh, he also said that the tests, his tests, the ones where he was on it, were observed by psychiatrists, psychologists, and pharmacologists. But for the people he was dosing unwittingly, it was just George on just a toilet. To- <laughs> I knew it was going to come back to the toilet. <laughs> just George eating a little George popcorn on his drinking toilet. Drinking a martini <laughs> on a toilet. Insane. That was before Netflix. It, uh, that was Netflix. That was his Netflix. Okay. Back to Operation Twilight Orgasm. Um, that's like an alternative title for Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Twilight Orgasm. Uh, so eventually these tests were deemed so successful that it was expanded. Oh my gosh. Operatives began dosing people with acid in restaurants, bars, and beaches. Oh my god. 
God. And they started using other more exotic drugs. Listen to this. One CIA source said, if we were scared enough of a drug not to try it out on ourselves, we sent it to San Francisco. Oh, my God. <laughs> Mom's just holding her face. I, I don't even know <laughs> how to respond to this. It's surreal. I mean, it's one of those things that It doesn't that you, sound like it could be reality. Like, it, this is, again, one of those moments where if I watched it on a video, like a movie, yeah. I'd be like, this is too it's much. Too, too, too far They expect fetched. me to believe this? That's silly. Remind me again when this was. Do we know It about? started in 1953. In the 50s, like the clean 50s. Clean. Yeah. <laughs> clean 50s. Like the Leave it to Beaver days. Gee, Mrs. Cleaver, do you have any <laughs> LSD? <laughs> june (laughs) send beef to his room so we can do our lsd for the night okay okay (laughs) so okay eventually finally in 1963 a decade this was going on for a decade a cia inspector general uh john earman let's give him credit thanks john good job john for being the only person in the cia with the john said what the hell is going on here john's like hey these people are called johns i don't like that being on my name (laughs) let's stop this nonsense immediately he stumbled upon the safe houses and was like excuse me what (laughs) what's happening he wrote a what report. is safe about this? this I don't is, see anything this safe. This seems like a misnomer, he said, <laughs> scribbling frantically in his notebook. He wrote a report strongly recommending closing the facility. So two oh years God. later, the San Francisco safe houses were closed. It took two years. 1965. Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> uh, the New York City safe house followed in 1966. So it took a whole nother year for that one to close. And that's kind of all we know right now about about that experiment I, like like i said a lot was not recorded like several sources that i saw uh said like they specifically would tell their underlings like do not record stuff about this mm-hmm. just don't write any notes but if you think about think about how many people were affected by that like either were dosed or were one of the prostitutes or one of the agents or how many people knew all that was going on for 10 years. Yes. I mean, if you were going to learn something, you probably would learn it in the first couple well, years. Well, and <laughs> I mean, there, there have been people that in this study and outside of this study, taking LSD even once like can cause like permanent neurological damage. Right. There was one thing I didn't write about it in my notes, so this is kind of off the top of my head, so I'm not going to get it right. But someone, and I believe George White was involved in this, not like on paper, but there's witness evidence that say that this this guy basically came to the higher-ups in like 53 around there when this whole thing was starting and was saying like, this is not okay that we're doing this. He got dosed with LSD and fell off a building. <gasps> oh. Either jumped or fell, but I think... One source I saw said that an autopsy revealed he had been hit on the head beforehand. So there's some sketchy stuff. Oh, Um, my God. Yeah. And I'm thinking, too, about the widow who gave his notebooks or whatever. Yeah. I mean. How much did she know about it? I know. And so did she want everybody else to know what a rat she'd been dealing with? Sure. Or was she was she shook, oblivious so shocked and, that she wanted to yeah did she not know about it yeah just she said like, i have a really good guy she, she who cares even, about when his bird dies <laughs> i want everyone to know what a good guy i was married to 
yeah here read these journals and and like i said there's a lot not declassified yet Uh like we have declassified a lot of documents but there is still stuff that is not there's just still a lot of questions um but there i don't think is a question about whether or not the people involved with this were good people (laughs) i or or whether or not they were involved for good reasons even do you think do you get the feeling i mean maybe i'm overreaching but that it was just a bunch of pervs i can't think of a good clinical word i'm gonna give um, you no pervs is a fine you know, clinical uh, word i'm that gonna just give said you... hey this this is our own pl-. like it said that the apartment was set after the playboy club or whatever so they were like let's do this kind of weird pervy playboy club thing where we're like the puppet masters and we can give them lsd and watch them have sex and would you like the concrete answer to that yes a quote from a letter George White wrote to Gottlieb in 1971, said, Uh I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the (gasps) All-Highest? Another Batman bad guy. Big fucking yikes, dude. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, he just summed it up, didn't he? Uh, yeah, like that's, <laughs> there's a lot where, and and we, we have talked about this on the show before, like our very first episode was about Sigmund Freud, who a lot of people view Freud as this like kind of megalomaniac person who was just doing things because he was sadistic and, and had really messed up ideas and he was really messed up about sex. And, and mm-hmm. we're even able to kind of look at that that person and say, you know, there's gray area here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There are things that happened in his life. And like we've talked about whenever we do histories of people, like mm-hmm. there are things that happened in their lives. Like even when you talked about the stuttering thing, I mean, I do think your guy was a Batman villain, but <laughs> I, I I can also acknowledge that he went through some crappy times. Right. And he, and he was trying to. Yeah. Reconcile process it in somehow. his own way. Yeah. And it was yeah. wrong and he was wrong. I think this guy was, was straight bad. up evil. Just an antisocial personality. I yeah. 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 So I I think that like if we are kind of talking about ethics, obviously we don't and this isn't like a consent situation anyway, so we no. can't really talk about those no. things. <laughs> I think like I said, I this was okay. This was a thinly veiled excuse to talk about some wacky CIA stuff. <laughs> It may seem tenuously connected to psychology, but I do think it says a lot about psychology. I, I think it says mainly a lot about the people involved on the back end, mm-hmm. like George White. I, I mean, we don't obviously have to talk about how unethical, and not even unethical, but illegal this right, all was. Right. I mean, this was straight up illegal. So I guess what we can take from it, I think what I would take from it was that sadists seek out positions of power. Ooh. And that, like... That's insightful. They will find ways to divert responsibility. I think that's why I asked about your guy, Johnson. Mm -hmm. Johnson? Mm -hmm. Wendell Johnson, yeah. Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) Now, he sounds like he blogs in your story. (laughs) Wendell Johnson of Midnight Climax. (laughs) Sounds like a... This is Pornhub now. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, like, that's why I asked, you know, do you think he was just trying to get responsibility off ah, of himself? Because you were, you were thinking of that in your own. Yeah, because, I mean, I think that, like, George White wrote, you know, oh, the sanction of the all highest. He's basically mm. saying, like, ostensibly we were doing it for, for reasons, but the reason is because we were having fun. Right. And so I think that 
people who are going to do that are going to seek out positions where they can. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's a lot politically right now about, like, I think not right now because there's pandemics and stuff. But, I, I mean, like, you know, we look at the social conversation of police and, and abuse of power. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's because people who want to abuse power go toward powerful positions Absolutely, to yeah. better abuse it. That's exactly right. And I also think that it says a lot about, I mean, obviously to a way bigger extent, that even if this were actually an experiment meant to like learn things, actually meant to do something important, not just to torture people for fun, it's forgetting that participants are real people who will have real consequences in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, one quote I saw said that many victims affected became afraid and paranoid as the drugs took effect. Some carried out crimes, including armed robberies, while under the influence of the CIA-administered drugs. No admissions were made by the CIA, and they were punished as if they had not been under the influence of such drugs. So, I mean, like, obviously, this isn't, like, a psychology experiment like we would normally talk about, but I do think that these subjects obviously suffered permanent mental and and psychological damage even if it wasn't neurological in nature i mean just being part of that is hugely traumatic right Uh, so even if we kind of pull back and look at researchers that don't have evil supervillain intentions (laughs) like i think that even people who have good intentions can sometimes get so caught up in the science and discovery that they can forget that they might be torturing people right right and I don't know. And, and I, I guess some people could argue about like weighing the greater good. Like, well, we might actually discover some of this, right. like something from this, but is it worth it? Well, and I think that that, that happens that people get caught up in the, I believe we're going to find something, right. you know, and like just a little bit more, just a little bit further. Let's push it just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do that in our everyday lives sometimes too. Right. When we should just stop whatever it is we're doing. Just Just don't. stop. But we keep pushing. Wow. <laughs> that was a lot, right? Whew, I'm overwhelmed. Ooh, baby. <laughs> I'm exhausted now. I know. That was a lot. <laughs> I don't know. It was uh, definitely interesting to look into it. I I had to try really hard not to fall down a total MK Ultra rabbit hole. I mean, there's oh, I bet. so much. I bet. Like, I had to really narrow my focus for just this operation. Yeah, to try to, to, try to keep it to the psychology frame mm-hmm. a little bit right yeah you instead could, of just being like i'm gonna spend four hours gonna... <laughs> on the lsd wikipedia page so we just thought we would kind of do a little episode today for kicks for looking at how... mom was like let's do something fun and i was like have i got some experiments <laughs> for you but when we talk about fun we just mean anything that's not pandemic related that's i think kind of true right now it's we're pretty easily entertained yeah so Will We're you gonna, thank the listeners, or do I you have will. anything else? To thank talk you about? for thank you for joining us in the in this painful painful <laughs> episode in this torture of, chamber uh, of an episode, <laughs> this gauntlet of an episode. <laughs> we should have gotten your consent before <laughs> we, we do informed consent. <laughs> this is a pretty intense one, so. We'll try not to be quite so intense. Well, I can't promise that. We might. If this pandemic goes on much longer, we we might get really dark. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, dude. We'll try. We'll try. But we do appreciate you, Sipsters, and we, we hope that you are staying safe and healthy and that you will continue to listen. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> she 
she seemed like she didn't use a period after that. She period. inhaled like she was going to keep talking. Uh, yes, thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Obviously, we love when people talk to us on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook all the time. Thanks, Emily. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Crafty Dreamer, for reaching out to us. You guys are wonderful. We're so glad you're listening to us. And you can find us on our site, FreudianSipsPod.com. If you want to get a hold of us directly, you can email us, FreudianSipsPod at gmail.com. And we're on Patreon if you want to support the show. We're Freudian and Sips Pod on there. Just Freudian Sips Pod on everything, as a general rule. Uh, please remember to leave us a nice rating and review if you can do that wherever you're listening. And we will give you a nice shout out and read it. And our hearts will just swell like the Grinch's heart. <laughs> our theme music is Sweeter Vermouth by Kevin McLeod. And it sounds like this. Mm-hmm.